we kicked off a brand new series uh, called, uh, we're calling it Day One. And the idea is there are practices that just day at a time uh, that help us um, wake up to the life of God. They help discipline our body and our mind and our spirit to the things of Jesus. That oftentimes, if you've been around church world, we talk about transformation, becoming more loving, just, becoming more like Jesus, hearing the voice of God, just doing the things of seeking first the way of God, right? Us on mission and outpost of love is our church. Supposed to be in, the churches are an outpost of justice and love and mercy, demonstrating and announcing the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. And all that comes with that, what we can often do is get caught up in language that's way up here. And so it's spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, which have taken all sorts of forms throughout the centuries, Things that all sorts of ones we find in Scripture that Jesus practices. Um, what they do is they help us. Anyone who has ever worked out before, anyone who has ever tried to learn a trade, uh, gotten better as an artist or a musician, you know that it's the daily routine that helps you get there. You know it's that like workout that needs to happen, that slow incremental thing. You don't just like, you know, pray away the fat, right? Some of you, I wish I could do that. How amazing would that be? Let's pray. Let's pray for some healing for Andrew. No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I say that and that we all know intuitively that. But sometimes Christians can get just kind of caught up in like by osmosis. I've said yes to Jesus and I will then become this, this, this uh, I, don't, I don't know, name your Christian icon. I, I will be the next Mother Teresa or I will just, because I've said yes to Jesus and I show up at church, I must be changing. And the illusion is, is because we talk about changing a lot. We talk about being transformed and we're not actually living into it. So that's what spiritual disciplines help us do. So day at a time, day at a time. And the world, as we talked about last week, is forming us constantly. Oftentimes we don't want to own that, like, you actually need to change. Like, you act, like there's some things that are actually broken. There's, or, or, or more so that there's blind spots. Right, the, the joke about blind spots is like, oh, yeah, I got some blind spots. No, you don't know your blind spots. If you know your blind spots, you're not blind anymore. There are things inside of us that we're being formed from the amount of advertising we see to the amount of things that we continually fill our head with in a passive way to the just weird, nebulous cultural forces that are pushing us towards certain values. And so we, we want to wake up. I, I use the, the analogy for those of you who have seen the old Matrix movie. It's like, you know, it's like unplugging from the matrix. Like there, there's a script that you don't realize you're bought into or that you're tempted and pushed in different ways. And church, even showing up on a Sunday is part of counterformation. We're breaking our normal rhythms, coming together with a bunch of people who of all their differences at least are looking at Jesus and seeking to move toward Jesus. And we're singing together and we're hearing teaching together and we're greeting one another and we're gathering in smaller groups where we can eat together. And be, These are all formation, but there are things in our day-to-day, -day, like day one, day two on the calendar that help us undo the ways that we're being formed and move us into a posture of life. And so what we're doing over the rest of the summer, last week was just sort of a setup is we're going to rally around um, our cultural values. Some of you are unfamiliar, but we, we talk about um, our cultural values at Sanctuary as directions. So we as a community, as individuals, and as a body, we always want to first travel upward. We want to actually travel, um, in, in a, and I mean that in the sense of everything begins with God. Everything begins with worship. Everything begins with who God is and what God has done. And we move inward. First Corinthians talks about we've been reconciled by God. 
right? And so we recognize that there's brokenness and issues inside us, and we want to be the person that God's called us to be. God is calling us to an internal uh, reconciliation and new transforming, sanctifying work. And then we move out into justice, into serving the poor, into caring and, de- and announcing and demonstrating the good news of Jesus. We are a people on mission. And we do all of this together. So we use the term with word. So up, in, out, and with. And so what we've done is just taken a few, and there are 50 spiritual disciplines, there are tons of spiritual disciplines. Uh, we've just uh, decided to select a few, focus in on some of them in some teaching times, and we're going to have a number of different guest teachers over the course of the summer. I'll be coming in and out of teaching. And letting people kind of share, hey, man, this discipline has been powerful for me. This discipline has shaped me. This, co- this understanding of the day-to-day actions has helped me undo the formation that's coming my way or, or, or the formation, the ways that I'm being turned towards the way of death. And so we're starting, uh, you can, oh, there's slides right there. We're starting with upward. Um, how great are these, by the way? John Finnerty. he's not actually here to hear that applause. We'll tell him next week. Uh, made all these, these are great looking. Uh, the upward direction uh, is going to be uh, what we're going to focus on for a couple of weeks here. How do we have the daily disciplines to travel upward to God? Um, we know upward's a bit of a misnomer, but it's just helpful. Uh, so all that said, I wanted to just kind of set the table a little bit and remind you uh, of kind of where we're at and where we're going. Uh, and then before I invite Chris up to speak, one last thing. If you have your bulletins right inside the front, I believe it's in the front page of your bulletin here. Um, yeah, on the, oh no, it's not there. Is it, do I have the wrong one? Is it in there, Jason? The day one? I must have grabbed the wrong bullet. Some of you may have grabbed the wrong bulletin. I don't think the other ones from last week got thrown out. Um, anyway, it should say on the left side, uh, day one, uh, sanctuarydayone.com. Uh, what we've done is launched a resource for you. Uh, it's a site, and it looks really good on your mobile phone. It's meant to really just be there. That some of these disciplines that we talk about, and then even disciplines that we don't talk about, spiritual practices that we don't talk about, And it just outlines in a really, really clear form. Like, here's the goal. Here's where we see this in Scripture. Here's how you can practice this. And then here's some resources that might help you. And especially this one. Chris is going to be talking about fixed hour prayer. This is a crucial one. And there's a lot of uh, resources on the site when you um, take a check-in to go there. Don't check it out while Chris is preaching. Um, But afterwards... And we'll be continuing to highlight things inside of this resource. But we wanted to provide this for the series. And this can be something that continues just to exist within our community that we can point to. Of I want to practice, pick up some daily practices. And I know if you're anything like me, you need some guide. You need actually a physical guide to be able to go through. Um, so I'm really excited uh, about that. John and Jason worked really hard to put all that together. So uh, that will be something to look forward to in the coming week. Great. So I want to uh, show you a picture really quick before I invite Chris up. Because this is our tradition. Next slide. That's not the picture. Is it not there? Oh, it's not there. It's okay. Is it there, Jason? No, don't worry about it. It's not worth it. It's a picture of Chris and I in fire hats at like age six. It's really cute. Maybe four. Imagine it. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty good in your mind, right? (laughs) What do you think, Jason? Should I just forget this? Ten more seconds. Um, what do you think? You want to tell a joke? you know any good jokes? <laughs> Is it there? 
hey, it's too small. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, um, Chris made the observation that basically nothing has really changed in terms of our demeanor. It's me being super over earnest, like, picture. A- and then it's Chris just being like, really, Andrew? Really? Come on, get over. <laughs> and that's basically been our relationship for a long time. It's kind of like this moment right now, right? I'm like, come on, no, cool, this is the picture. And Chris is like, dude, stop, Just I'll just teach now. <laughs> it's the best intro ever. <laughs> Anyway, this is my buddy Chris, and he's planning a church in Rochester, New Hampshire. Uh, he's preached with us, a co- or been down here a couple times. Chris is actually the person who, uh, along with one other person, we helped start Sanctuary as a service years ago when it was at Christ Church. Um, so uh, much of, of the DNA even still that exists here has been sh- actually shaped by Chris. Uh, so let's pray together for Chris. Lord, I thank you for, um, for him. I thank you for uh, the things that you've laid on his heart this morning. God, I'm so uh, grateful for the leadership uh, in our denomination and in our, um, in our just, in my life. <laughs> um, and I pray that that would uh, just be, be apparent uh, as he teaches, Lord, that we would uh, learn the way of Jesus and be more faithful to the way of Jesus. Uh, God, is, uh, he gives us some things to think about. In your name we pray, amen. Well, that about sums it up. We can just jump right in. <coughs> No, it's great to be here. Um, I've kind of been texting my church community this morning as they were broken up into kind of house church groups this Sunday. Um, But it's good to be here with Sanctuary. Um, You are in actual fact my second favorite church community. So it's good to be here with you. (laughs) When I was in a, when you think about kind of the childhood picture there. When I was in middle school, high school thereabouts, uh, maybe you guys remember this phenomenon, maybe you don't. Um, and maybe it's still out there, I, I, I'm not totally sure. Uh, but basically a t-shirt movement um, that seems kind of endless, but it just it's basically a very basic formula um, that when something like life is X, fill in the blank, the rest is just details. Right, so you get this T-shirt. Life is soccer. The rest of details, or football, or fishing, or or what have you. Is anyone familiar with those shirts? You've seen them around. They still in the mall. Anyway, life is whatever. The rest is just details. I actually got to wondering some time ago about the origins of that movement of T-shirts and. Uh, with the, even with the infinite power of the internet at my disposal, I had a hard time tracking down kind of where this formula came from. But the earliest instance I was able to find of that phrase, the rest is just details, was actually came from Albert Einstein. It's pretty crazy. Um, but he was actually speaking not about football or soccer or fishing or anything else. He was speaking about what drove his, his just voracious appetite for scientific inquiry. And he said this, Albert Einstein, he said, I want to know how God created the world. He said, I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon or this in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. And the rest are mere details. 
So I, I don't know about baseball or football or fishing or any of that, but to know the thoughts of God, I mean, that's, that's an ambition worthy of a lifetime. Our passage this morning from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount here, he's, he's beginning to lead into his teaching on prayer. And so he addresses his disciples and he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. They may be seen by others, but truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't op- heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But Jesus begins, when you pray. And I just have to admit, I have to confess that right off the bat, we're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Right? Because I'm going to be frank, and I'll admit to you that this is, this is really as much a confession as it is a teaching. Um, because as a concept and as a practice, and it's kind of ironic that this is the topic I'm preaching on today. But as a, as a concept and practice, I... I I struggle, I do, I struggle with prayer. And I think most of us do if we're being honest. And part of it's a, it's a factor, it's a result of the age we live in. Because of the enlightenment, because of modernity, because of uh, the emergence of scientific rationalism. These things have done a great many things for Western society. You think medicine, think exploration, think the, just the... Um, technology or our understanding of the physical world, all these things have improved exponentially over the, the, the past century. But I'm afraid that all that, that progress has really come, this, the expanding of our minds has often come at the expense of our souls, societally speaking. You know, as a culture... We've, we've forgotten how to pray. We've forgotten how to pray. Even in churches, right, where we would say that we, we depend on the Holy Spirit, the kind of power of God. We, do, we would say we depend on the Holy Spirit and the resources of heaven to do what we do. But even though we say that, modernity, right, the the age we live in has given us such a wealth of resources, of systems, of strategies, of technologies, that, that honestly, so long as we make our expectations reasonable enough, we are pretty confident. We're pretty confident that we could kind of keep things going, like even if God took this week off or this month off. Or whatever. And we don't say that, of course, because that would be ridiculous. But this is actually how we live. It's how we work. It's how we minister. And as our felt need for the work and the power and the presence of God becomes dulled, as our sense of urgency diminishes because of the tools we have at our disposal, the practice of prayer becomes spotty. It becomes superficial. It becomes stagnant. To the point that it even becomes something that we struggle to even understand. 
let's be honest, I mean, in Christian communities, saying, like, I'll pray for you, often becomes nothing more than kind of a churchy Christian nicety. It's the kind of thing we say we don't know what to s- know what else to say. It's this this token offering. You know, we might feel weird if you know if we skip saying grace before a meal, but we can't really fig- put our finger on why. You know, and as I've met with and I've discipled people, I've mentored people in our church, and as I've observed in my own life, almost across the board, the day in day out confession is that we struggle as people, we struggle to spend any significant, considerable time in prayer. And if you're a churchgoer, if you're a follower of Jesus, we tend to go through life kind of quietly guilty about this, but we really just don't know what to do about it. And this is the reason that that is spectacularly tragic. The reason it's spectacularly tragic that we struggle with and we don't know what to do with prayer or spend any time in prayer is that as God has wired us as his creatures, as God has intended it, the way the very fabric of the universe is woven together, prayer, as God intends it, is the very lifeblood and breath of the Christian journey. It is air, it is water, it is nourishment. Prayer is both the means and the proper ends of our life in Christ. And if we're being honest, we don't, we don't touch it. We don't touch it. And so we wonder why the church in the Western world seems to be falling apart or failing to capture the imagination of a new generation, but I'll I'll go out on a limb and suggest that it's because we've cut off the work of God from the power of God, and we've traded in our impossible kingdom visions and a desperate dependence on the Holy Spirit really for reasonable expectations, a good management strategy, and we have organized Jesus out of a job. By and large, we have traded away mystery and wonder and faith, and we have satisfied ourselves with slapping a Christian bumper sticker on the tail end of a functioning secularism. And it turns out, it isn't working. The Church of Jesus... It's exploding in South America. It is exploding in Africa. It's exploding in China. But in Europe, North America, our own backyard, the Northeast, the church appears to be withering away in kind of futility and irrelevance because we've not only found ourselves laboring apart from the power of God, we've actually even forgotten that we're supposed to ask for it. We don't even know what we should be asking for, you know? Imagination, hope, longing, these are the expressions of the heart that God has given us so that we would hunger for the things of heaven. These things, our imagination, our hope, they've been crushed beneath the weight of our enlightenment, American, suburban, urban reasonableness. We are so scared of being disappointed by God 
that we've stopped asking him to show up. And so we've forgotten how to pray. <laughs> and this is the truth we desperately need to reappropriate if we're ever going to see a real move of the kingdom here in this city, in my city. And that is this, that for followers of Jesus, life is prayer. Life is prayer. And everything else really is just details. But Jesus says, when you pray, so let's talk about the actuality of prayer. When you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. In that little word, when. We struggle with that because it's loaded with expectation. Isn't it? We read this passage, it jumps out at us immediately that Jesus doesn't say, if. He says, when you pray. Not if, but when. The expectation of Jesus is that his followers, his disciples, would be a people of prayer. And for Jesus and those people he was speaking to in that original context, that was a very reasonable expectation. I mean, while for us, in our often hectic, hapless, rhythmless lives, prayer easily becomes an if, you know, if I get around to it, if I remember, if. See, pious Jews of Jesus' day, they rooted their lives in regular rhythms of prayer. They were inspired by the author of Psalm 119 who wrote, Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. So inspired by that, prayers for pious Jews would be offered at dawn, around breakfast, mid-morning, noon, mid-afternoon, dusk, and bedtime. So literally seven times a day, people would stop and they would pray. And a lot of times these, these, these would be not necessarily take a long time, but seven times a day, faithful Jewish people would stop whatever they're doing and call upon their creator God. And this was a discipline and a rhythm of life that continued into the early Christian church. And oftentimes these prayers would just be a simple praying of a scripture, a psalm, or praying of another writing of a rabbi. But seven times a day they would do this. And we see references in the scripture to the apostles in the early Christian church being at prayer in certain times of day. We see this in Acts 3, chapter 1, which says, Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. That is the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. And there, as they're going to pray, as they're going to pray, they meet this lame beggar at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they heal him. But they're going to the temple at the hour of prayer, Scripture tells us. Acts chapter 10, verse 9 says, The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. And he's there, he's in the hour, that hour of prayer, that sixth hour of prayer. He receives his vision to go speak to minister to this non-Jewish person, this Gentile named Cornelius, which effectively opens the floodgates of the Christian church from being just a Jewish sect to being the global movement of God. 
But Peter meets and receives this vision from God as he's in a regular moment of prayer, the sixth hour. And see, to this day, there are communities of Christians all over the world that hold to this discipline of what's called the daily office or the hours of prayer. And sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's four occasions for daily prayer. And these rhythms remain the cornerstone of monastic life, monastic communities. It is, it is the framework that monastic communities are built on. But we have to understand that you don't need to be a monk to build your life and build our lives around prayer. The fact of the matter is that Jesus couldn't imagine his followers attempting to live the kind of life that he was calling them into apart from the daily, even hourly guidance, nourishment that prayer provides. Jesus couldn't imagine that. But so often that's exactly what we do. We attempt to live this life that Jesus is calling us into apart from the resources of God. Speaking of the, uh, the daily office, the hours on their blog, the Fuller Youth Institute describes three unique benefits of establishing regular rhythms of prayer through something like the daily office or otherwise. The first, they say, is the reorientation and the stewardship of time. They write this. They say, the daily office provides Christians an opportunity to acknowledge the sovereignty and the presence of God in their lives. Fixed hour prayer allows the believer to, to, quote, see through the mundane reality of daily life to the benevolent, loving, personal spirit of God that has permeated it all to make every day Sunday and all of life prayer. And so we see that in a, in a world where technology and this frenzied pace of life often serves to cut us off from any sense or natural sense of rhythm and perspective, offering uh, ourselves to these scheduled inter interruptions, interruptions for prayer throughout the day injects this regular reminder of God's presence, His power, His sovereignty in the world. And it does this work that Andrew spoke of, this, this recalibrating of our hearts moment by moment throughout the day. I mean, so most of us can go hardly a few hours without eating or drinking something. But let's, can, let's be honest and I'll confess that we can go days without prayer. <laughs> and it, we have to ask, is it really a surprise that we find ourselves scattered, stressed out, and spiritually malnourished? In, in giving regular time to God, we confess and we, and we rest in the knowledge that all time is His. And all of our days His. And we learn how to trust Him with that time He has given us this hour, this day, this next year. So one of the ways the daily office serves us is it recalibrates and it, and it offers up, it changes our perspective on time. And it offers our time back to God. It provides a framework for a day. The second benefit they, they bring out is that this connection with the worldwide, the global church. And they write this. They say, fixed hour prayer serves as the prayers of the corporate church, not just the prayers of individual church members. 
the words and structure of the daily office have changed over the centuries that they've been practiced, but the purpose has remained the same. One author writes that while other prayers might be petitionary or intercessory or otherwise, or any number of things, the liturgy, the hours, remains an act of offering of the creature to the creator. So as we engage in fixed hour prayer, we're invited into this rich history of prayer throughout the life of the corporate church as well as engaging with modern-day Christians practicing fixed-hour prayer all around the world. And so in a world and in a culture that is as crushingly individualistic as our own, something as countercultural as the daily office actually draws us into connection both with the ancient and the global church. That as I stop to pray at noon or 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., even if it's just a moment, I know that literally across the globe at those same moments, the church is stopping to pray. They were not mere individuals approaching God. We are the, His body, the bride of Christ, and we stop. And so we get this connection with both the ancient and the global church. Every time we step aside to pray, we can recognize that we're taking part in an act of worship and communion that's been going on for thousands of years and continues to this day all over the world. The kingdom of God runs deeper and broader and richer than we can possibly imagine. And prayer invites us into both the strength and the peace of that realization. So fixed hour prayer recalibrates our connection, our relationship with time. It connects us with the, both the ancient and the global church. And the third thing they do is they offer just the reading of Scripture as prayer, just as a tool. They say, lastly, fixed hour prayer provides us a concrete way of dealing with the Bible. Because most fixed hour liturgies consist almost exclusively of scriptural text. And so for people seeking a deep immersion in Scripture, fixed hour prayer is particularly a helpful spiritual practice as it provides just a concrete text to pray. Depending on the resource, many prayer books set forward a schedule that leads through all the Psalms and much of the Old and New Testaments. So most evangelical followers of Jesus that I know in the United States, two things are true. One, we tend to be suspicious of praying things that have been written down by someone else. And second, we seem to have a hard time spending more than five minutes in prayer ever because we run out of things to say. And so there's this beautiful truth that we're able to come to the Lord in prayer simply, conversationally, extemporaneously, just kind of as it happens. And we don't need fancy prepared words in order to be heard by God. That's a beautiful truth. And I hold to that. But on the flip side... It's often the case that praying the words of Scripture or maybe offering up a prayer that was written down by someone who came long before us and walked this road of faith long before us can actually open our hearts and our journey with God in prayer to a whole new dimension that we, we never would have just stumbled into on our own. So praying the words of Scripture particularly takes us on this journey into the heart of these spiritual ancestors and opens up new facets of understanding and worship. 
And so as with anything, I think the most important thing when it comes to spiritual disciplines, as we wrestle with these convictions, the most important thing is, is to wrestle and then just begin somewhere. Just start. Just try. <laughs> and, and again, this is this is as much as a confession as it is a teaching because I, I am not long in the way of structured hourly fixed hour prayer. But the longer that I'm on this journey with the Lord, the more deeply I feel my need for His power daily and His nourishing. And this is something as simple for me, even over the past summer, just setting an alarm on my phone that just kind of goes off, 9 a.m., 12, 3 p.m., that says, pray. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be involved. It, it could be just reading a scripture. It could just be pausing to recalibrate and be like, yeah, actually, God, you're here. Thank you. Here's something that's on my heart. Here's something on my mind. Here's Even just the act of having that alarm go off, just a reminder, like, recalibrates us to time, recalibrates us to the global church, and draws us into the word. So even just simple things like that, the most important thing is just to begin and see where the journey takes you. So we wrestle with that, just the actuality, the tools of prayer and and you're going to go deeper with that with some tools even later in this service and um, some resources offered by Andrew and leadership here. So the actuality of prayer we wrestle with. But as we go even further in, we, as we press through this, this scripture in Matthew chapter 6, we see the next facet is the audience of prayer. So the actuality of prayer, the audience of prayer. Because Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So prayer, prayer is not magical. It is not an act of public speaking or performance. It's not about being flowery or eloquent or even intelligible sometimes. See, the Apostle Paul describes the prayer communication that happens within God on our behalf. This kind of con this conversation that happens between Jesus, the Son, and the Father through the Holy Spirit. He describes that prayer between the persons of God as, as like groanings that are too deep for words. And so that gives me comfort that, that I don't have to worry about not being able to find the words. Because God feels the same way sometimes. See, the power of prayer is not how we speak, but it's found in who we are speaking to. The audience of our prayers. And I think a lot of times religious folks, church folks, tend seem to lose sight of this. Because we become more focused on on making sure that what we're praying, if we're praying corporately, making sure it's it's sensible or, or, or impressive to the people around us, then we are with making eye contact with the God to whom we are supposedly speaking. 
And so when that happens, we actually rob ourselves of the power and the beauty of that conversation, Jesus says. It's like trying to have a meaningful conversation with a spouse or a loved one or a good friend while like staring at your Twitter app the entire time. You ever tried to do that? Like your wife or, your, or just a good friend is trying to have a meaningful conversation with you. In the meantime, you're trying to craft a really killer status update or like watch cat videos. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. We try it all the time. But you actually rob yourself of the power of that conversation or the, even the content of it. As a pastor, I have to confess that I struggle with this when it comes to praying in community or publicly. It's hard to discipline yourself to remember that the people that you're praying with or around, they're not actually the ones that you're talking to. And so I struggle to remember in the moment that prayer is not about coming off as eloquent or deep or profound or even intelligible to you. It's about fixing our eyes on Jesus in order to be transformed by his love and grace. See, the hypocrites that Jesus speaks of, they'd forgotten that. They were very concerned that they'd be looked at and that they sounded like uh, um, good, impressive religious folks. Prayer had just become another tool for them of projecting their righteousness to the world. And so their words might have been addressed to God, but their eyes and their hearts were on the people around them. And Jesus says, well, you wanted to look good and religious. Congratulations. You got what you asked for. And that's it. <laughs> Dallas Willard says that when we do good deeds to be seen by human beings, it's because we're looking for something that comes from human beings. <laughs> and so if in prayer we are looking for resources, nourishment, transformation, and guidance that can come only for, from God, we had better remember to make sure it's actually God we're speaking to. <laughs> you know, When we pray. When I think about this in our, in our culture uh, of screen addiction... It's very much a corollary to this the discipline in that culture of making actual eye contact with people. Eye contact in conversation. See, in prayer, we are invited to put down the phone, put down the distractions, and look into the face of God. Throughout Scripture, when we see um, people in Scripture speaking about prayer, they're constantly asking us, do you realize who you're talking to? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. Isaiah 40 says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Lift up your eyes. 
in Christ, in Jesus. It is the very spirit of this God, that God, who takes up residence in our own hearts, our lives, and teaches us what it means to pray. And the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The audience of prayer. The audience of prayer. And lastly, we wrestle with the ends of prayer. Jesus says, your father knows. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. But we have context in pagan kind of Roman culture. Prayer often became this kind of totemism. If we just say the right words, the right combination of words, and we can trigger this reaction in the cosmos that God will have to listen to us. And so there's a lot of babbling and just, again, very superstitious, just pouring out of language. And Jesus says, don't, don't be like them. Your father loves you and knows what you need before you ask him. And so again, I have to confess this truth, that the Father, that this truth, that, that the Father knows what I, what we need before we ask Him, that knowledge has tended to make me lazy in prayer. <laughs> All right, because it, if He already knows, and I, and I think of the scripture like, don't heap up empty phrases, right? There's a part of me that just wonders, what the, what's the point What's the point of prayer anyway? I mean, if I'm just telling you something you already know, then why are we having this conversation? It seems really inefficient. And so it makes me lazy in prayer. <laughs> that, of course, misses the point entirely, but it does beg that question. Like, what, what is the point of prayer? Because in prayer, I'm not capable of informing God of anything he doesn't already know. And so prayer shouldn't be addressed as a, as a, or approached as a list, a laundry list of things that I need to tell God. In prayer, I'm not engaging in an act of religious performance. My point is not to prepare a pious or profound other people. Because if I do that, I've just emptied the act of any real meaning. So if it's not to inform God, if it's not to look pious, then, then what is the point? Now I'm going to suggest this. That the point of prayer is ultimately about making eye contact with the Almighty. It is to every day, every hour of our lives, lift up our eyes to consider to look upon the face of God and be changed by that encounter. Could it be that the simple act of surrender and faithfulness that is prayer might transform our hearts such that we could be able to rightly receive and perceive the things we're asking for as we request things from God? In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says it this way. He says, prayer catapults us into the frontier of spiritual life, of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central 
because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. It is the discipline of prayer that brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. Real prayer is life creating and life changing. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. But prayer doesn't only change us, it also changes situations. Again, Foster continues, he says, the Bible prayers prayed as if their prayers could and would make a difference, an objective difference in the world. So we have to wrestle with this responsibility, this holy responsibility that we're, certain things will happen in history, in our world, if we pray. We're changing the world by prayer. And my friend Bill put it this way. He said, prayer is the only necessary thing. Western culture is obsessed with doing. Our inclination is to fix, manage, and psychologize our way through problems. But our busyness, our desire to control life, threatens to remove God from the equation. Maybe the church, maybe I need to spend less time doing and more time being in the presence of God. God's word and God's spirit are the only things the church has going for it. In a consumer culture where the gospel's influence is diminishing, many churches are trying any and all means to attract a crowd. Slick programs, sleek buildings, top-notch music, Limitless resources and charismatic personalities can draw a crowd, but I refuse to put my faith in anything but the Word and the Spirit of God. Techniques and genius can accomplish the possible, the natural, the predictable, but only God can accomplish the impossible, the supernatural, the unpredictable. To pray is to look into the face of God and be changed and to be caught up with him in the very redemption of our world. And I confess that I am tired. I am tired of accomplishing the possible, the natural, and the predictable. My heart, and I know the heart of this church, is to partner with God in accomplishing the impossible, the supernatural, the unpredictable. To call down the power of God to do for the purposes of God. And to see the world changed. I hunger for that. I know this church hungers for that. See, for followers of Jesus, life, properly understood, is prayer. And the rest is details. Life is breathing, it's drinking, it's eating. It is the, the very nourishment of our life in Christ. And so as you press into more tools, you think about things like daily hours, recognize that that is what the discipline is for. It's like training ourselves to breathe. And we breathe in the very life of God. And thanks be to Him, through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to do what we often uh, do.
at the beginning of the service, which is actually walk through some fixed practices. So we're going to gather around Thanksgiving. We're going to give thanks in song. And we're going to enter a time of confession, just being open and honest about what's broken in our own heart and our own sin, our own distortion of God's good gifts. And then we're going to remind ourselves of our assurance that for those of us who are here and who are followers of Jesus, we have in, in Jesus. And so we usually do this at the front end. We wanted to do this after as sort of a, a, a symbolic and whole body way of, of engaging what Chris just spoke about, which is to, to, uh, to structure a bit our time of prayer and we would be thoughtful. So as we give thanks, we pray. As we confess our sins, we pray. As we are, are reminded through scripture and through coming to the communion table this, uh, this morning of God's love for us right where we are. So may we engage this practice uh, together. stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard tender whisper love in the longest nights, and you tell me that I'm loved and that I'm never alone. You're good. You are perfect, cause you are perfect in all of your ways, you are perfect in all of your ways, you are perfect. 
So for our, uh, our time of confession, of all the things that are, are happening at the Eucharist, at this uh, really sacred meal that Jesus gives his followers to take, to do in remembrance of him, of who he is and his work. Because as we often say, we have a propensity to forget. And so one of the things happening at, at the table is an acknowledgement of the forgiveness of sins. An acknowledgement that we have fallen short. An acknowledgement that we all know whether we're Christians or not. We, we, we have this inbuilt understanding and sense that, that there is stuff in our hearts that is out of whack. That is not how it should be. We are not as just. We are not as loving. We are not as open to wonder and beauty. We are not as, for, as forgiving as much as we would love to be forgiven. We, we see the places in our own DNA that are just are not right. Anyone who has children, we know that we see the selfishness just right out of the gate. And so we come to this table as followers of Jesus, not because we like to beat ourselves up or focus on the negative. We just want to be realistic and more realistic than often the rest of the world is. We want to just be honest that we have a bent toward death. And so let's take a moment to acknowledge the good and beautiful good and beautiful world and the good and beautiful gifts that we do have that we have distorted, that have gone astray. And just in the quietness of our own hearts, just take, let's take a, a moment just to bring those things before God. What do you need to lay at the feet of Jesus? Jesus.